Welcome to Cincy Reformed. I'm Pastor Brandon, joined with Pastor Zach, and uh, we have a, a kind of a follow-up episode today to something we did, um, I think, a few months ago. We had an episode on infant baptism, and that generated a lot of questions about, okay, if we're baptizing infants, how do we view covenant children? How do we view the children of believers? Do we view them as Christians? Do we view them as hopefully one day we'll be Christians? How, how am I looking at the, the covenant child that I, um, that I just baptized? You know, how do we understand this? So, Zach, before we kind of maybe jump into looking at look at how Reformed theology has spoken about that, maybe you could you could kind of situate us biblically and and how the Bible um, looks at children, um, just assumes you know what does the Bible assume about children um, of believing parents? Yeah, certainly. I think that when we begin to think about the overarching biblical story, we see a very central place for children from the very beginning until the very end. When you're thinking about Genesis 1 and 2, you're seeing uh, not only animals multiplying, but mankind being blessed for the sake of procreation, to have children beginning to fill the world, to multiply, to subdue it. We see lineages throughout the book of Genesis. And these family lineages are described for us as either of the believing lineage, the one coming forth from uh, believing Adam and Eve through Seth, or through the unbelieving lineage, which becomes a a, a great spiral of wickedness and sin that uh, becomes culminates at uh, the Tower of Babel and in the uh, fighting against God's people throughout uh, the book of Genesis and throughout the Bible. But throughout these, uh, these, these lineages, what you end up seeing are these communities come into play. And these communities are really families. You have families that are brought into a covenant with the Lord. We think especially of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Clearly, families were part of God's plan before that with Seth and so forth as the family of God worshipped around the altar. But that became very formalized and became very clearly a a family at the time of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 15, and chapter 17, with the covenant sign of circumcision being given. It was not merely a covenant that God made with an individual, Abraham, but with Abraham and also his offspring that the family of Abraham, the lineage of Abraham, was being set apart by God as something special to God, being given a promise, being given a a forthcoming place, and uh, being given a a promise of a great blessing that would come upon Abraham and his people one day. And so from within the entire Old Testament text, you find this, this concept of covenant and family, uh, you find that when God speaks about his, his people, Israel, he's not only thinking about the adults, he's thinking about their children as well. Not only the old, but also the young. And promises can be made to Israel, and the young are included in those covenant promises. Just like it's not only the old that enjoy the blessings 
of the promised land of Canaan, but also the young enjoy those blessings. Not only the old experience and endure the curses that came with the uh, covenant uh, that was made at Sinai, but also the, uh, the young endure those uh, covenant curses as well as they were cast out into exile. The parents of God's people are given responsibilities toward their children because God loves those covenant children. And so God makes, um, gives commands to the covenant parents to instruct their children. We might think especially of the Passover and how at the Passover time the, uh, the parents were to teach their children about God's mighty acts of old and how they were now part of that, that story of redemption. It was not just a suggestion that they should be teaching their children of those things, but a requirement that the parents teach their children about God's covenants, about the requirements of the covenants, and about how God had promised to act toward his covenant people. These kind of uh, covenant dealings are not only an Old Testament thing, however, but we find this just continue right on into the New Testament. As the Lord Jesus received children into his arms and blessed them with his priestly hands, we see this as households are received into the church by way of baptism. We see children addressed in the epistles of Ephesians and Colossians as being just assumed as being part of the church. We see this um, uh, th throughout the uh, New Testament, not just in the Old, that uh, God speaks about his church and he doesn't just speak about adults, but he speaks about the children of those adults as well. So just in terms of how we begin to think about the, these kinds of biblical coordinates, whether you're talking about at the very beginning of the Bible or whether you're bringing ourselves to the very end of the Bible, we're talking about a lineage. We're talking about families. We're talking about not just adults, but their children who are brought into this inheritance that uh, God has uh, graciously brought to pass within this age of sin. So, Abraham, if you could begin to direct us to some particularly Reformed forefathers who have reflected upon this covenantal dynamic and the uh, place of children within the church and how we might begin to think about now more specifically our question for how we view our children. Yeah, no, I think that the, the introduction, the kind of the setup that you gave, I think it was uh, helpful. I mean, children uh, of believing parents, uh, you know, obviously have, the Bible just presupposes that they are in covenant, that they are part of the covenant. And so our Reformed uh, forefathers um, in the faith, uh, the way that they viewed um, children is a lot different from what we experience today in our kind of you know in, in our uh, evangelical kind of landscape we you know typically and and you know I come from that uh, that background and so you know typically uh, we view children as you know we hope one day you'll grow up and you'll get saved and you'll have an experience. You'll walk an aisle. You'll you'll do something one day, and we're just hoping that one day it comes. And so I wanted to walk through a few just to kind of acclimate us, and also to show you that this was a pervasive um, view of children. This is not something that only one or two people talked about in in uh, the the history of the church, but this was actually a pretty pervasive understanding of covenant children. Um, Herman Witsius. 
Um, he uh, taught that there is no middle ground. You belong to Christ, or but if you're outside of Christ, you belong to Satan. Those in Christ are baptized into Christ, and those who are baptized into Christ have fellowship in the church. And, and so if our children are to have fellowship in the church, it means that they are... Um, they are part of Christ. They are baptized into Christ. They have remission of sin, which is the first thing that flows from the enjoyment of the covenant of grace. Um, according to Witsius, the question is not if God can regenerate an infant uh, prior to baptism. We know that he can. Uh, he did that, for example, with John the Baptist, where in the womb, John the Baptist received the Holy Spirit. So, obviously, we know that regeneration, being born again, can be something that can happen even in, in the womb. But Witsius goes beyond that and says that we ought to see God as ordinarily regenerating elect infants in believing households. So, elect infants ordinarily, he says, possess the habits of faith. So he says that's the ordinary way that we should understand God working in households, Christian households. He says, the efficacy of baptism consists not in producing regeneration. In other words, when, you're, when you baptize your infant, you're not producing um, regeneration. You're not giving them the Holy Spirit mechanically in the act of baptism. He says, but in sealing Baptism is sealing a regeneration already produced, as we understand God's ordinary way of dealing with his covenant children. Thomas Manton said, Infants do not have actual faith, which begins in knowledge and ends in, a, and ends in affiance. They have the seed of faith, habits of faith, inclination of faith, or the principles of grace in their souls by the secret operation of the Spirit of God, which gives them an interest in Christ. So for Manton, I, I love that language he uses there of seed of faith, um, the inclination of faith, the principles of grace are, are in our children uh, put there by the secret operation of the Spirit of God. William Ames, he said, infants are enabled by a passive receptance to be united to Christ, which means habits of faith in the child will not be without acts of faith. So there will be acts of faith. But here's what Ames says. The acts of faith that children will do will be according to their, to, uh, their age. It will, it will be proper to their age. So an act of faith for a one-day-old is going to be different from an act of faith for a 70-year-old. So Ames is saying, yes, children are going to have acts of faith, but it will be proper to their age. It will look differently as they mature. Thomas Goodwin, uh, he comments on 1 Corinthians 7.14, which talks about how um, the children of believing parents are holy. And he talks about this holiness uh, of these children. And he said there's only one holiness. There are not two holiness. There are not two holinesses. There, there's one holiness. It is saving holiness. We, we do not know, Goodwin says, who is 100% one of God's elect. Like, we, we, we don't know 
the elect and the reprobate. Um, and, and he talks about how some will follow the way of Esau, and that's going to be a sad reality. Only God knows who the elect are. He said, but we ought to judge them as elect. And I love the phrase that Goodwin uses. He says that we ought to give covenant children the judgment of charity. The judgment of charity. Uh, and it's based upon the promises of God, not the eternal decree of God. So when we look at our children and we give the judgment of charity, we're not basing it on infallible knowledge that they are the elect. We're basing it on God's promise. We're basing it on God's ordinary way of dealing with covenant children. I'm going to jump in here really yeah. quickly because I think this is a really helpful point just to pause and say that this is really how we treat other Christians, adults in the church as well. Good point. And we're just applying this now to the way that we should think about our covenant children also. Because we don't have some litmus test right. that enables us to figure out infallibly how whether someone in our church is an elect believer or not. But rather what we do is we conduct ourselves outwardly. That person it professes to be a believer. That person is baptized. And so we give them that judgment of charity and treat them as a believer. And so that's what we're, we're saying here. We're applying this to our right. children. So we're not waiting for them to become something one day, to become a Christian one day. We do want them to grow in maturity, just like we all want to grow in maturity. But I think it's important to just note this, that this judgment of charity, we're taking what we often what we apply to adults uh, by um, instinct, where we're saying this is how we should instinctively think about our children as well. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, no, I think that's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point. That's the judgment of charity we offer to people in the pew next to us mm-hmm. as we're as we're worshiping together, and it's the judgment of charity we give to our our children, our children in in covenant. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think Goodwin's judgment of charity is 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 a very helpful category to have. Zacharias Ursinus, uh, he says, to be born in the church is to have a profession of faith, actual faith in adults and an inclination of faith in infants. And here's a, uh, here's a, a, a quote from Zacharias Ursinus. He says, Faith is in infants potentially and by inclination, although not actually as in adults. Those who are born of godly parents have holiness as to inclination, not according to nature, but according to the grace of the covenant. And still further, infants have the Holy Ghost. If infants now have the Holy Ghost, he certainly works in them regeneration, good inclinations, new desires, and other such things as are necessary for their salvation, or he at least supplies them with everything that is requisite for their baptism. It's an interesting statement there, I think. Um, Francis Turretin says, Faith and repentance are in infants as in the root, not in the fruit, as in the internal operations of the Spirit, not in manifested works. So there's a root, there's uh, something that has yet to manifest fully and maturely, uh, but still will have obviously some manifestations. The Westminster Public Directory of Worship calls children of believing parents Christians. 
And so we baptize our children because they are Christians. We, we don't view them as pagans, vipers, and diapers. We view our covenant children as Christians. And so we baptize them because they are Christians. And one more quote. This is from Henry Bullinger in his uh, book, The Decades. He says, St. Peter could not deny the baptism of water to whom he saw the Holy Ghost to be given, which is an assured token of God's people. For he saith in the Acts of the Apostles, Can any man forbid water that these should be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? Wherefore the Holy Apostle Peter denied not baptism to infants, for he knew assuredly, even by the doctrine of this Lord of his Lord and Master, that the kingdom of heaven is of infants. No man is received into the kingdom of heaven unless he be a friend of God, and these are not destitute of the Spirit of God. For he which hath not the Spirit of God, the same is none of his. Children are gods, therefore they have the Spirit of God. Therefore, if they have received the Holy Ghost as well as we, if we are, if they be accounted among the people of God, who, I pray you, can, for, can forbid these to be baptized with water in the name of the Lord? So, clearly, um, the Reformed, our, our Reformed forefathers, our Reformed forebears in the faith, had a view of children that they are Christians, and we ought to give them the judgment of charity, um, based upon the promise of God, based upon the ordinary operation of God in saving and, and imparting the Holy Spirit to His to our or His um, covenant children, and I think it's a great reminder too that um, salvation is of the Lord and it's not of man, and that manifests itself and and uh, I think really well. And as as we view infants, as we view helpless babes, salvation is of God. Um, when Mark Jones, he did a, a helpful lecture where he interacted with all of these, uh, all of these reformed um, uh, people that I quoted, and he was talking about, you know, is faith is faith required for baptism, and that's often you know what we hear in in Baptist churches, for example, that faith is required for baptism, and Mark Jones um, has a, a I think a helpful response. He says. We are to judge that the habit of faith is present in covenant children, according to our judgment of charity, based upon the promise of God. Baptism is not a sign of a child's faith, nor is it a sign of any adult's faith. Rather, baptism is a sign that children and adults must look to and embrace by faith until they die or else their baptism becomes a curse and not a blessing. Baptism represents Christ in whom our faith must rest. But he goes on to say that there is a sense in which we can say that, yeah, um, um, the, you know, as Reformed Christians, we hold to believers-only baptism in a sense, and that we give the judgment of charity that all of our covenant children have the inclination of faith, the seed of faith, the habit of faith, whatever you want to call it, and based upon that judgment of charity, based upon their seed of faith, we baptize them. And 
um, they, they, they have faith. Now it's not a mature faith a 40-year-old who, is, you know, who has been a Christian his or her whole life might have, but it is a faith proper to their age. So, um, Zach, to kind of bring this conversation in a more pastoral kind of note, um, so somebody who's struggling with this, you know, they, they come to you as a pastor and they say, okay, wait a second. You're telling me that the baby inside my wife's womb right now has faith um, or has the Holy Spirit. I mean, how, how can we, how can, how can that be? They don't know the gospel. How, how, how do we understand this, this child having, having faith? Great question. I think that what we need to begin to uh, think about uh, is that children, even from the womb, they know the voice of their mom and their dad. And that is something that becomes very evident when you're a new parent, maybe you're, you're pregnant for the very first time, the child hears mom's voice, dad's voice, and the child, even in the womb, begins to respond to that. I think you see this very clearly as well after a birth takes place that a child can think that um, he or she is away from mom and dad, mom and dad's not close by, but then all of a sudden they hear mom and dad's voice and that child all of a sudden settles down and um, becomes very content and at ease because mom or dad's there and he or she heard that voice. Now, if you were to ask, you know, does that little baby that was just born, or is that baby in the womb, does that child have faith in mom or dad? We'd say, well, yes and no. If we're judging this by a mature faith, then that baby does not really even know the name mom, doesn't really know what mom is or who mom is, but there's a deep sense in which that, that baby does know who mom is and who dad is. And so there's that inclination to faith, that habit of faith, that exists even from the womb. I mean, I remember in the um, delivery room for my first, how my son was screaming his head off <laughs> until then he heard my voice and then he just settled right down, just stopped, snuggled up in my arms. It was just like a light switch on him where he just changed everything in an instant because mm -hmm. he heard me. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing where I think that we need to work from that to then recognize that these children have that inclination, that habit of faith, they're able to trust someone, even if they can't artic articulate what that trust is or why they trust in that, in that uh, parent. And so if they can do that with a, with a biological parent, with a biological father, my son toward me, I mean, surely how much more can a child of God learn even from the womb to recognize the voice of his or her father in heaven speaking in scripture. We think about, you know, moms attend worship and that child is in worship, even in utero. And so even from the moment of being in utero, that child is learning the, the rhythms of worship. That child is hearing songs being sung. That child is hearing the scripture being read. That child is, you know, in this way, participating and becoming uh, used to, accustomed to that liturgical context that really is their heritage. And so do children from the womb trust in mom or dad? Yeah, not with a mature trust, 
So we'd also say that, yeah, they can also trust their Heavenly Father. Do they you know, know exactly what that means? No. But even from the womb, they begin to learn from Mother Church that uh, Mother Church brings the Bible to bear and brings washing to bear and to uh, raise children within the faith. And so even from that early stage, we could say that children can learn who God is, and over the course of many years, they can articulate that and to grow into that as is fitting for a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old. That's not fitting for someone who's in, in utero or just moments born. Mm. So hope that's helpful for you, Brandon. I mean, I'm sure we have further reflections on that. Yeah. But I think it'd be, you know, interesting to come back to maybe some of your own experience to think about how a... Uh, an embrace of infant baptism has helped change your own um, perspective on your children because you had a time where you were not yet ready to baptize your children. And then obviously you've come around to believe that that's a biblical thing to do. And so you have very clearly had to wrestle with this fact of how you view um, those in your own household. So maybe you can kind of explain how that uh, how this theological perspective has changed your own views. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even before I was kind of wrestling through infant baptism and wrestling through what it means to have covenant children and how God views them, I, I became uneasy as, uh, you know, as, as a Baptist father. Um, and I, I became uneasy with, so for example, um, my, my son, when he was, I think, I think it was around, he was maybe five years old, maybe he, um, saw a baptism or something of the, of this nature. And he, he wanted to get baptized. He wanted to be, to be baptized too. And, uh, you know, my son has, I mean, he's ever since he was born, he's just been in church. We, we started catechizing him and, and, and teaching him scripture when he was like two, he had things memorized. You know, by the, by the age of four, he had catechisms memorized. And, uh, we constantly spoke the gospel to him and, and we had family worship. And so he just kind of was just brought up in a context of Christ. And so here at the age of five, he's saying a baptism, and he, he wants to be baptized. And, you know, in, in the Baptist church, that's kind of young. It's on the young side. Mm -hmm. You typically, uh, you know, wouldn't baptize someone that quite that young. Um, now, some might, but most, I think, in the Baptistic world would not. Um, and so, you know, as Baptist parents, we said, well, you know, um, not yet. We, we, we want to make sure that we want you to, uh, you have to be born again. And this really confused him because he was like, I, I do believe in Jesus. And then the whole time everybody's saying, well, we got to make sure that you believe, or we got to, you know, one day when you get older, you know, you'll believe, or you'll have an experience and you'll walk this aisle or something and, and you'll, you'll, you'll be born again or something. And so, and it just kind of threw him into a confusion. He thought he was a believer. He thought that he followed Christ. And then here, come to find out, well, we're not sure. Well, we need to, we need to make sure he's born again, which is going to happen later. We need to make sure he's of faith later. And um, a few weeks after we had that, that kind of awkward conversation about why he couldn't be baptized at the age of five, 
we were reading something in the Bible, I, I can't even remember the passage, and we were talking about believing, and I asked him if he believed, and where before he would have gave a clear yes, he gave an I don't know. He's like, I, I don't know. I thought I did. He told me I don't. Now I don't know what I believe. If, if what I believe is not faith, then what is faith? I have no idea. If you're telling me that my, my trust was um, not true, not genuine somehow, um, and there's some sort of future thing awaiting me, then I don't even know what that looks like. And, and he just was thrown into such confusion that as we talked about if he believed, he just kept saying, I don't know, maybe one day, I don't know, maybe if I get bigger, I'll believe. Who knows? And it, it, it actually, I was just kind of like thinking, I'm doing damage to him because here he's thinking, I, I do believe. And here I'm saying, well, maybe not. Well, not yet. Well, you got to be born again. And uh, just threw him into confusion. He doesn't know if he's a believer. And, and so um, coming into a more reformed understanding of children of believing parents, and I would say a more biblical view of um, uh, our believing parents, it was just nice not to do damage to my children anymore and to, and to treat them as Christians because they are Christians. And not say, well, one day, hopefully, but to say, already, now let's grow in it. Um, and every day, let's remind ourselves of the gospel. Every day, let's uh, repent of sin and have faith uh, and not uh, doing damage to, to, to young consciences about Christ and about their trust and faith in him and not um, doubting the genuineness of their faith and not um, doubting the work of the Holy Spirit, even in the womb. And so, um, yeah, I would say just a a radical view of looking at children as pagans until they have some sort of experience uh, versus now viewing them as we should view them viewing them as god wants us to, to view them as christians um and um, children of the covenant who ought to be baptized um into the into that into that covenant um, any anything to follow up with that no i think it's just uh, a helpful way of following up on our previous baptism conversation because I think that oftentimes people can hear our view of infant baptism and because we don't have a mechanical view of things then they can think that we view baptism as some sort of an empty sign is merely some outward thing we're doing but it really affects the way that we view our children we believe that something very deeply spiritual um, has already happened for our children and that that's God's ordinary way of working upon his um, covenant children. So I think it's just been a helpful conversation to have. Uh, thanks for joining with uh, joining us. I uh, hope it was helpful for you as well. I hope it was edifying, encouraging for you. We uh, invite you to join us uh, in the future at cincyreformed.org. Check out our church, Westside Reformed Church. Find us online at westsidereformed.org. Again, my name is Zach Wise. I'm here with uh, Brandon Burks. We're co-pastors of Westside Reform Church, and we're really glad to have you with us tonight. All right, bye. Thank you.